Thank you for your prayers in our absence over the last weekend and through the last several days. We spent a significant amount of time caring for four grandchildren and two dogs in cold north New Jersey. You find, I think you have all recognized your children or your grandchildren have the ability to ask often very insightful questions in caring those many days for four grandchildren and two dogs in cold North New Jersey. <laughs> a couple of times, the grandchildren went to Christy and wanted to know why Pops was so grumpy. <laughs> this made me more grumpy and angry. Dogs the size of bears don't belong in the house, for one thing. And the behavior of grandchildren is sometimes influenced by the in-laws, not so much our own family. But sometimes the questions that children ask strike to the heart of the matter, don't they? One of our grandsons, when he was quite younger, whenever he would see or hear about some kind of celebrity, someone that the world was paying attention to, inevitably he would ask the question, he would say, Dad, did they love God? Dad, do they love God? It was a foundational question of his worldview. And it's a great question, isn't it? It's a question for us today. Do you love God? Do you love the Lord Jesus? That's a question that's in our text today. It's there. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, the last chapter, chapter 16. Today we culminate our study that we've been in for nearly a year on being the body of Christ. We've been walking our way through this letter by the Apostle Paul written to an ancient church in the sophisticated, wealthy city of Corinth. And there was a gathering of believers there. There was a gathered church of Jesus Christ, but they were troubled. They had significant challenges. And, and as we've seen in this letter, the Apostle is writing them about living that kind of lifestyle, the lifestyle that represents Jesus Christ, living it in a world and in a context and in a culture that is very often contrary and different to the call of holiness, to the call of Christ-likeness, to the call of godliness. And so we've called this series Being the Body of Christ because that's the focus. The focus is we are the body of Christ living in this world. We are the abiding presence of Jesus. His physical body is no longer here, but he is pleased to represent himself through churches like ours being the body of Christ. To be the people of God among the pagans is another way to say it. And the Corinthian believers were often quite exasperating, unlike us, amen. They were exasperating on so many levels. And the interesting thing is they had asked important questions, but it has been noted by other commentators and pastors, while they asked important questions, they ignored crucial questions. The issues they raised were important issues, but what's clear as the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to them, it's clear that they were ignoring issues that were far more fundamental, far more important, that struck to the heart. They were ignoring crucial problems, crucial flaws, fault lines in their relationships and in their supposed 
following after Jesus, they were ignoring these things. And so what we have in 1 Corinthians is truly a pastoral letter. It shows a pastor's love for a chaotic church. It shows a, a father's sternness toward wandering children. And the truth is, from what we know in the book of Acts and what we know in the other letters in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul spent more time with this church than any other church. He invested more, as one commentator says, he invested his talents, his time, and his tears for the church at Corinth. And that shows in the letter his concern, his passion, his eagerness to correct them and to care for them. And so here's what we're going to find as we wrap up this letter the very last verses of chapter 16. We're going to find words that are warmly encouraging, but also in the very same context, we find words that are profoundly serious. Serious for them, and by application, words that are serious for us. Because what we're going to see is that there is a, a seriousness. There's a, if I can borrow a contemporary term, there's a gravitas. There's a weightiness to what Paul says that is so often absent in our contemporary churches. Far too often in churches today, and sometimes perhaps in our church, we should ask the question, have we given over to what some commentators have called a juvenilization of the church? Uh, this is just youth group, and we're trying to have fun. And if we don't have the fun itch scratched, we wonder why we're here. But you read the words of the New Testament and even the words that we're going to see this morning in 1 Corinthians 16, there's a seriousness and a weightiness that comes in our chasing after Jesus and in our obedience to Jesus as a church that we need to take seriously. It can really be summarized with these questions. Do we love the Lord Jesus? How do others know that we love the Lord Jesus? Maybe more to the point, how do we know that we love the Lord Jesus? 1 Corinthians 16. I hope you have your Bibles open. One of the things we find is that this passage shows us that the ancient letter ends with warm assurances. There's a warmth to this as Paul writes, and he writes in his own hand. Glance with me to begin with. Glance down at verse 21 and notice what Paul says. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul used in nearly all of his letters, if not all of them, he used what's called an amanuensis. That's just a $10 word for secretary. Paul would have someone that he would dictate his letters to. And so, remember, we believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had apostolic authority, but as he wrote to the churches, the Holy Spirit would guide his thinking and his words and direct them toward truth. And the apostle used the, the secretary or the Amanuensis is the technical term, to write out his letters. But then at the end of nearly all his letters, he would pick up the pen, and on the papyrus or on the, on the paper that was written, he would write out a greeting. He would jot his name, perhaps. And in nearly all the letters, you can go to the letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, nearly all of them have this personal greeting. Uh, he does the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So this is what Paul, he gives warm greetings and he does so even in his own handwriting. He does it in his own hand. We have other ancient examples of this in the Greek and Roman worlds. 
One Greek scholar said, if we only had that signature on a scrap of paper, well, I'm thankful we don't. Because you know what would happen if we had Paul's literal signature on one of the original copies of Scripture? That would be worshipped. The Roman Catholic system has shown this now throughout centuries with their elevation of relics, the strange idea that for some reason we should give devotion to some kind of physical representation of the historical evidences of the faith. And if we had a literal copy that Paul had signed, what do you think would have happened to that over the centuries? It would have been exalted as an element of worship. Which, by the way, brings me to, I think, another distinctive Pauline evidence. Because it says there in verse number, in verse number 21, and it says also in second, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 3, the last part of that verse says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's not only I am writing this with my own hand, but he distinctively says the grace of the Lord Jesus. That was distinctive for him. And what I mean by that is the typical way of ending the letter is the Greek word kyrene, which basically is a way of saying greetings. And if you were writing a letter in the ancient Greek or Roman world, you would generally end the letter, like we often will say sincerely, they would often end the letter with kyrene, which is greetings. But Paul almost never does that. He ends with charis, which is the Greek word for grace. And there's another indication of the literal authenticity of Paul writing, but there's also significance in the way that God's grace comes to us, and we're going to see that again before we're through. So Paul personally has acknowledged this is his letter. Watch this, the warm assurance. There are at least three in this text that I want you to see, beginning in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 16. And the first assurance is this. They find assurance here in Paul's words that they aren't in this alone. They aren't in this alone. Look at what he says beginning in verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. By the way, when you read Asia, this is not talking about the Orient in the way that we think of the Orient. It just talks about a specifically eastern part of the Roman Empire, and basically that's part of modern Turkey. So when you read Asia, don't think what we think of as Asia. This is another part of the Roman Empire on the far eastern regions. And these churches that were in Asia, if you want a list of them, go to Revelation 2 and 3, because these are the churches that Jesus sent letters to through the writings of John in Revelation 2 and 3. That's Asia. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, another way to write her name, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So first of all, the church gathered in their house, likely in Ephesus, as Paul was writing. Aquila and Priscilla had ended up in Ephesus, and they were there, and a church was gathering in their home. And that church sent greetings as well. The Corinth church knew them. By the way, churches didn't have buildings until probably the third century. So the idea of a church, when we think of church, we'll often say, well, I'm going to go over to the church. No, you're not, especially if no one's here. You're not going to the church. You're going to the church building. You're going to the church facility. But this is the church. It's a gathering of God's people. And so this is a church that met in their home, and they sent hearty greetings or mini greetings. Some translations say warm greetings. And so they 
send acknowledgments to the church at Corinth. And remember, they had lived in Corinth, and Paul had lived with them in Corinth. And the truth is, probably in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla had been discipled by Paul while they made tents together. They were all tent makers. Paul had that as a career, and Aquila and Priscilla had it as a skill. And so they were sitting around sewing tents together. Likely, Paul was discipling this couple in the gospel. And then later on, that bore fruit because, as we heard last week about Apollos, Apollos had been discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. There's a point to this. They were in this all together. The Corinthian church, existing among the morass and the immorality of the Corinthian culture, they weren't in this alone. There was a connection from other churches. There was a connection from other believers. So look at verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. By the way, if you've been with us through our study in 1 Corinthians, that's a significant statement to greet one another with a holy kiss. These Corinthians couldn't get along with one another. They each had their factions, remember? So the crowd that really wanted to follow Apollos, they were supposed to give a warm greeting, a holy kiss to the crowd that wanted to follow Simon Peter. And those that said, well, we're following Paul. You see, the factions, the the differences in economic scale that we found when they gathered for the dinner at the Lord's table, all of these things Paul had addressed and rebuked. And here at the end, he says, you want to know how you all ought to relate to one another? You ought to give a holy kiss to one another. A holy kiss. What do we do with that? Paraphrase that today, give a side hug to one another, right? That's how we would think of it. It's fascinating as I worked on this this week that the commentators are they're divided on how widespread in the Semitic cultures of the ancient world this greeting of a kiss was. It's disputed. Some people imply that it happened all the time in Roman and Greek culture. Sometimes people say it didn't, it hardly happened at all. Evidently, what we can say for sure is that when there was a familial, when there was a family like relationship of affection or respect, there would be a cultural greeting of a kiss on the cheek. It was often in the synagogues, it was likely limited to gender to gender, to keep from, Paul says, a holy kiss, to keep from any kind of sexual implication. That's possible. But it was really an activity that Paul endorses here as a demonstration, we are family together. And again, the Corinthians needed to hear that because they had been factionalized into all these different groups And it was to be a holy kiss, to guard from any kind of sexual immorality. It was a kiss that was holy. It was a greeting, and it was a greeting which showed deep respect and warm affection, despite their different ethnicities, despite their different socioeconomic level, despite their different gifts, despite their politics. They were to greet one another warmly. And more broadly, what this text is telling us is that the Corinthians, and by application, we can claim this as well, we are not in this alone. This is the principle of the remnant. You remember Elijah, after he had stood against the prophets, and then he was chased away, and he, and he was in a cave, and he was saying, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. Remember what God said to him? There are still 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. There's always a remnant. We may not see the remnant. We may at any particular time be connected with the remnant, but we are not in this alone. As I was working on this message, I was sitting in a Starbucks in Jersey, and next to me, in a way that I was not eavesdropping, I could not help but hear them, was a a woman about my age and her mother. 
And they were talking together as they prayed over their Starbucks snack, which was more than I had done. They then talked about God's guidance and God's kindness and God's providence. And they talked about the decisions that they had to make in their family. And it was all in the context of seeking the guidance of the Lord. We're not in this alone. We may feel like it sometimes, but we're not in this alone. There's a second level of assurance that we find here, and it is in verse 22 and 23. We find warm assurance that all of this really does matter. All of this really does matter. Look at verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. It's the Greek word anathema. Then you have, O Lord, come. This is the Aramaic phrase. We say it Maranatha. That's an Aramaic term. It's odd that Paul would be writing to Greek speakers or Latin speakers, and he would use an Aramaic term. Evidently, this had become a kind of passcode. In the early generation of the church, there was such a passion for the coming of the Lord, Lord, come, Maranatha, that Christians used it with one another. Christians would use it as a, as a passcode, as a, as a way of identifying with one another if they were strangers, evidently. And so here Paul, writing to Greek speakers, he throws in an Aramaic term that would be, have been familiar to them, a passion for the Lord's coming. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. By the way, notice this. The Lord, or Lord Jesus, is three times just in these two verses. Uh, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come, and then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here in the early days of the church, there was already this sense that Jesus was what? Lord. And especially for Jewish speakers, that word Lord would have been used in their language. It would have been used for Yahweh in the Old Testament, the ultimate identity of God, the covenant name of God. So here Jesus was exalted in their minds and in their theology. They already recognized Jesus is indeed God. And anyone who doesn't love him, anathema, the curse of God on them. It's an unusual to end a letter with such a harsh word historically, perhaps even today. This shows up and I call it in the middle of warm assurances. So it's a bit striking to us, isn't it? If one has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Stunning terms. At the very least, first of all, this should make us uncomfortable. At the very least, it shows that salvation is not some kind of cold economic transaction. We just sang the words. Christ is our greatest treasure that we value above anything else. And if we've not come to that place where, at least in our heart, we recognize the value, at least in our heart we recognize perhaps we fall often short, as the Corinthians had done throughout the whole letter. But if we have no concern, no value for Jesus, we are outside the faith. To not love or treasure the Lord is to be under the curse of God, which is a terrifying place to be. Remember what the Bible says? We know John 3.16, don't we? We all, we all recognize that verse. In the very same encounter in John 3, look at what Jesus has said. 
At the end of the chapter, it's unclear whether this is Jesus or John writing, but one way or another, at the end of that chapter in John 3.36, we read this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Watch this, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, there's bad news along with the good news. The bad news is what makes the good news so good. And the bad news is that the wrath of God abides on people in their sin. Who are those people? Well, if you go back up earlier in John 3, this is what we read. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in is condemned already. Now, can I just pause for a moment? And let's put ourselves in the shoes of a skeptic. Why? Why is this such a big deal to God? I mean, why is it that God structures it in such a way? Why is it God's judgment flows out in such a way that if you don't love the Lord Jesus, if you don't believe in him, if you don't, in the words of chapter 3, verse 36, if you don't obey him, then God's wrath abides on you? Well, we find out why. If we keep reading in John 3, verse 18 says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he, because, note the word, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There is a sense of transaction here. And the transaction is unbelievers see the light and they say, I'm good. No thanks. I prefer the darkness. I prefer my own will. I prefer my own exalted individualism. I prefer making my own decisions rather than yielding to the authority of the one who is Lord. We read in verse 36, wrath. And again, a skeptic would say, really? Why is God wrathful? Because one won't believe, because one disobeys the Son. Well, if we go back in verse 35, the previous verse, we read this, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, this is the mystery of the Trinity, but I don't want you to miss this. The reason loving Jesus is so important is because if you don't love Jesus, you are willfully rebelling against what the Father loves, what God loves. You are willfully saying what he values, what he cares about, yeah, that's just optional for me. You know, on my list of life's priorities, if I have time, you know, I'll chase after this Christianity thing. You know, I have background in the church, and so I'll show up on Sundays from time to time, but to really love him as a priority, I'm good. And the Father says, if you don't love, then the wrath of the Father abides on you. To love is to adore, to worship, to obey, to treasure to not love him is to reject his ultimate glory. It's the sin, the ultimate sin of knowing the glory of God, of seeing the glory of God and rejecting it. Loving not merely Jesus, but you notice it doesn't say that. It says anyone who has no love for Jesus, it doesn't say that. It says anyone who does not love the Lord, Jesus in his identity as God, as master. To love him as Lord. You see, this gets down to the same issue that we saw in chapter 15. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. 
You, you have either crossed over from being your own God, your own authority, in repentance and faith to trust in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, Galatians 3 says, took the curse for us. We are under a curse, but Jesus took the curse on our behalf, and therefore the curse of God is removed. The anathema of God is removed for those who believe. And it is belief that is not merely intellectual or transactional. It is belief that is personal and whole in the sense that you yield yourself to the God of heaven who has proven himself worthy in Jesus Christ, his son, repenting of your sins and trusting him. That's the gospel. And there is good news in it as well. And that's the reason you have immediately falling. It's stunning. Let him be accursed, it says in verse 22. And then in the same verse, O Lord, come. You have anathema followed by maranatha. O come, Lord. The coming of the Lord is a word of hope, but it's also linked with warning. That's the way the day of the Lord was in the Old Testament. When, in the Old Testament, when Yahweh promised that there would finally be a day when God would wrap everything up, it was basically this, good news for his people, bad news for everybody else. And you see, that's a connection here. For those that are accursed, Maranatha, you're in trouble. For those who believe, who know your sins are forgiven in Jesus, a time of rich blessing. How much blessing? Well, let's glance back with me into chapter 15 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, look with me in verse 24. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, here's how blessed it is. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. And you recognize why believers living in the evil Roman Empire, anticipating the persecution that would soon come upon them, you recognize why they were eager to say Maranatha. We go home in our comfortable cars. The biggest challenge we have on a Sunday is where we're going to eat lunch. We have the comfort of living in this beautiful coastal region. And sometimes the idea of Jesus coming, yeah, we're good. For some of us, it's that way. For others of us, we've seen enough of the world's hurt. We've walked through enough of the world's heartache. We've victimized ourselves with rebellion, and we've been victimized by others with their rebellion. And for those of us that are aware of those things, we cry out in our heart, Maranatha, Lord, come. And the point of this, at the end of Paul's letter, is this stuff matters. This is the issue of being cursed by God or being delighted that Jesus finally returns. And there's no middle ground here. All of this really matters. And then finally, what we find is that there's warm assurance, not just that they weren't in this alone, and not just that all of this really does matter, but there's this assurance that despite it all, they were loved. Despite it all, they were loved. Look at verse 24. My love be with all, you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And you ask the question, wait, what? This church? These guys? I mean, remember what Paul has said to them? If you want to glance back with me, just really quickly, go to chapter 4 for just a minute. 
Listen to what Paul had written to them in chapter 4. He said, in chapter 4, verse 18, he said, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you at all, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. He said, Paul's throwing it down. He's saying, you better get ready. In verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Whoa. Look at the next chapter. Look at verse 2. But you are arrogant, he says. Go with me over to chapter 11. Look at chapter 11 and glance at verse number 17 with me. Number 17, chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following interactions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Go down and look at verse 22 of that same chapter. He says, what? Have you not houses to eat in, drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Go to chapter 15. Look at what he says in the middle of chapter 15, his great discussion on the resurrection. And in verse 36, he says, you foolish person. And then he ends the letter and he says, I love all of you. My love to you all. Despite it all, he loved them. And there's a very practical lesson for us here. I think we all need to hear it this morning. It's crucial that if you love someone, you tell them the truth. If you're not willing to tell someone the truth, you don't fully love them. We need to hear that today, don't we? A church needs to be willing to stand up and tell the truth, which will be interpreted by many as being unloving. But we need to recognize that if we don't tell the truth, we're not really loving people. Paul had loved them well in this letter. Despite it all, they were loved. Now, what were the Corinthians to take away from this letter? And what should we take away as we study this pastoral letter that was written to the church of God 2,000 years ago. Here's a summary. This is what we should take away from 1 Corinthians. God's empowering grace is fleshed out in His church. God's empowering grace. You recognize what grace is. Grace is God's help that's undeserved. And our next breath is dependent upon the grace of God. We don't deserve our next breath. So everything we receive is God's grace. And the grace and salvation it's fleshed out, it is demonstrated, it's explained, it's experienced, it's fleshed out in the church of God. God's empowering grace is fleshed out in his church. This letter is filled with grace. In chapter number 16, we just read it, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. But if you go back to chapter 1, you read this, Grace and to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with grace. It ends with grace. Because that's what we need. That's where our life begins, with the grace of God. Salvation history, creation, fall, and then God provides salvation and grace. And one day he will fix all of this. He will make all things new. That's his grace. In the Old Testament, his grace was to the people Israel, the nation. In the New Testament, the grace is to the people of the church. This is how God demonstrates his glory to fallen people is through grace. And the way he demonstrates grace 
is through a gathering of flawed, broken people just like us, the church. So 1 Corinthians is about living life together, about living for Jesus together, about being the church. And this is God's design. The church is His plan, His project, His program. The church is the bride of Jesus. And listen, be very, very careful about saying that you love Jesus, but you don't care anything about the church. That's like saying you respect and love someone, but you have no concern you despise their wife. The concern of God is for His church, the bride of Jesus. And 1 Corinthians was written so that the people of God living in a corrupt culture would remember that it's in the gathering of the church where they experience the fleshed out grace of God in relationships and in teaching and in operating their spiritual gifts with one another. All of the blessings and the benefits of the church. So having said all of that, the question we ask every week is, so what? What's this have to do with our lives? What's this have to do with the way we live? Well, let me give you some takeaways. Through this challenging letter to this troubled church, the apostle, he kept circling back to these basic truths and the life lessons that flow from them. First of all, always remember your identity. Always remember your identity. They are called saints. They are called chosen ones. They are called beloved children. The term is used church, which means a called out assembly. God called them out himself. This is who they were. And it is our default, for whatever reason, it is our default to jump immediately to the commands and the imperatives, the, the, the responsibilities. And the responsibilities are there. They are undeniable. But in scripture, the commands and responsibilities are always rooted in who we are in Jesus Christ. Our identity is God's people. And this is what Paul comes back to over and over again in 1 Corinthians. He calls them to be the church in the midst of this corrupt culture to be, this is the title of our series, to be the body of Christ, to be the church. This was their identity. Remember who you are and be who you are. Remember your identity. The second lesson we take away from 1 Corinthians is always remember your context. Always remember your context. The milieu in which you live, the, the surroundings, the, the prevailing culture, and there are so many similarities. Let me be specific. There's so many similarities to Santa Barbara, California, and Corinth of 2,000 years ago. Cosmopolitan cities, sophisticated in many ways, educated cities, affluent cities, diverse in their ethnicities, Homer, the secular writer, calls Corinth wealthy Corinth, and Corinth was given over to education and also entertainment. It had over a dozen temples. It was a religious city, but it also had two massive theaters, one that seated 18,000 people in the ancient world because partying was part of Corinth's lifestyle. So much so that the word Corinthianize, Corinthianize was a, was a byword for gross immorality. It was a byword for sexual debauchery. It was the ultimate of hedonism to live as a Corinthian person. And what we find in the letter is that there was an arrogance that had infected the church 
They'd forgotten the context in which they lived, and they had allowed that worldly influence to come into the church, and especially the powerful and more influential members. They were insisting on their rights instead of yielding their rights for their weaker brothers and sisters. And there are all kinds of problems with sexual immorality and legal conflicts. You remember through the book, they'd forgotten the context in which they lived as one very well-known preacher says they needed to be de-Corinthianized. And the term we've come back to over and over again, I apologize again because it's an old-fashioned word, but it's the term worldliness. To yield to the values of the prevailing culture, we need to recognize it, we need to name it, we need to be wary of it. And by the way, once again, the tendency, for some reason, our tendency is to jump to externals. Well, at least I don't do this. At least I don't say this. At least I don't live this way. I don't dress this way. I don't do that activity. And we immediately jump to the externals. And all of those things may well be important, but you know where it begins according to Jesus? It begins in the heart. It begins in what we love. We need to beware of our context. We need to be aware of living so deeply rooted in the present without any longing for the kingdom. Remember your context. Which brings us to the third point. The Corinthians had forgotten their mission. Always remember your mission. And your mission, if we want to say it simply, is to live differently. That's the root idea of the word holy. Unique, to live distinct and separate from those around us. To be in the world, but not of the world. Rather, instead of of loving what the world loves, to love God, to love Jesus, and to love our neighbor. That's what we're called to be. We're called to live in contrast to this radical individualism, this self-indulgence that's all around us, and it's also sometimes in our sinful flesh. The personal preference becomes the ultimate value, and we see it today more than any time in history that you dare not challenge anyone about their personal preference. You dare not challenge anyone about their individual freedom. You dare not suggest to someone that there's an outside standard by which they should live. And the people of God say, we've yielded those things. The passion of our lives is to love God and love others. That's our mission, to look different from the world around us, to yield up our rights, to sacrifice for others, to say no to that which will defile us. This is what God calls us to do. This is our mission. To not be radically isolated, because that doesn't help the world. To be so separate that we never have friendships, that we never have interaction. No, God doesn't call us to that. But the danger these days is that we'll be radically assimilated into the world so that there's no difference at all. Remember your mission We're called to live together in relationship with one another in holiness, in love and in service. And when we do this, when we do this, all of this displays God in His glory. That's our mission. And then finally, always remember your resources. Always remember your resources. What are your resources? If you're a follower of Jesus, listen carefully. If you've been forgiven of your sins, if you've put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, if you are regenerated, if you are born again, 
If you are in the family of God, these things are true of you. You have in your own life the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's been clear throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, the working of the Holy Spirit. You have, or at least you should have, the opportunity to be part of the fellowship of the local church, where your grace gifts are used for the benefit of others, and their grace gifts are used for your benefit. In such a way, there's a reciprocity here, that when you have a deficiency, someone else's grace gift meets that need. And when others have a deficiency, their, someone, your grace gift can meet their need. This is the way the church is designed. And you will never know that if you silo your life in such a way that you are never connected to others. But if you remember your resources, you'll remember that not only are you filled with the Holy Spirit, not only has the Holy Spirit sealed you and dwells within you, but at the very same time, the Holy Spirit has gifted you in such a way that you're to be part of one another's lives. Always remember your resources. There's another resource we have. And I want to suggest to you that this one and the next one, the Corinthians, they didn't recognize at least in fullness. We have the resource of the Word of God. Think about the access we have to God's Holy Word. Think about the completion of the Word that we now enjoy. The Corinthians didn't have that. As I sometimes say, they couldn't read the Bible, they were living the Bible, right? It was being written at that time. The New Testament. They had the Old Testament Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the Scriptures of Israel, and they held it as God's Word. But we have the completed canon of Scripture. But we don't, it's not just that we have the Bible. We have that. We have incredible tools. But we also can look back on 2,000 years of history of what the Gospel of Jesus Christ has meant in history, of the way it has changed lives, of how it has been compromised sometimes, of how churches have failed and where the church has succeeded. And we can look back and see that in history. All of these are resources. Remember them. And Paul was writing to the Corinth church. He was basically saying, God's grace is fleshed out in your relationships in the church. And we can say the same thing. So we all recognize We can't search for a perfect church. Sometimes we can't even find the ideal church. But God calls us to find a faithful church. And then when we find a faithful church, to be a faithful participant in it, in the body of Christ in that place. This is the message. These are the takeaways from the book of 1 Corinthians. Always remember your identity. Always remember your context to the world around us. Remember your mission and always remember that God has equipped you. Remember your resources. So we conclude this morning with very simple questions. Perhaps even questions that are simplistic, even more than simple. But they're grounded in this text. They're grounded in the book of 1 Corinthians. So I ask you in conclusion, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you love his church? Do you love your church? Important questions. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the church of Jesus designed by you in eternity, called in eternity, 
as part of your sovereign plan for us in this day and time to manifest your grace and glory. Thank you that we have the privilege of living in relationship with one another. And thank you that the Holy Spirit is so kind. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are part of our church family. You infill each of us, and then you are pleased. You empowered the church as the church comes together in worship and in praise and in study and in service. It is our desire, individually and as a church family, that we truly be the body of Christ. Hear and answer our prayer for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.